It's a fascinating thing to recognize the abundance of the world around us. Everything we might need emerging from the soil or hanging off the trees. A haberdashery, a grocery store, perhaps materials to provide shelter or fuel to keep us warm. The way we utilize this bounty is limited only by our imaginations. And as we adjust our eyes and tune in to the continual change through the seasons, it's hard to not be impressed by the sheer variety on offer, the diversity of our options. And this feeling of choice expands ever further when we recognize the versatility that each of these provide. Is it food or medicine, fiber or fuel, pigment, fragrance or something to clean with? Or could it be fertilizer? Food for the plants, a feast or a home for the many workers of our lands. For the most part, it is many or even all of those. And if we place importance on that second group, the feeding of the soil and the housing of the natural workforce, that's when abundance can become effortless. Dismantling this intertwined web of creation can get complex quickly. There's so many players dancing and adapting to keep in balance not just with one another, but with the movements in time, the changes of the weather and maintaining their place within the progression of this creation that they're building together. From spring to winter, grassland to forest, one era of time to the next. Working together, they sustain an ever-moving creation that has the flexibility to iron out the inevitable bumps that millennia of existence is likely to pop on the road. So how does any of this relate to farming? Well, before we go any further, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and this is the second in this new format, which follows on from our journey exploring soil. These dialogues share the world through my own personal lens, with an aim to bridge the thinking between the way we've become accustomed to seeing the world and the mindset of regeneration. In this episode, we're taking a look at farming through fresh eyes to reconsider some of our norms and shine a light on potential paths forward. Exploring the question, can farming actually help soil and these whole systems of abundance? You'll be hearing from various guests as we navigate this, so do take a look in the description if you'd like to learn more about them and their work. Bernadette Millard helps us appreciate the potential of agroforestry and perennials. Hannah Thorogood offers insights into why we should be imitating nature with our raising of livestock. And filmmaker Peter Bick brings observations from his extensive project with a wide range of scientists who have studied the elements of nature to bring data that can guide farming systems in a direction that taps into the generosity and abundance of the natural world. To help us on this journey of the very complex, I want to outline three focuses for us to travel through with. The first takes us back to our exploration of soil, 
If you haven't had a listen, I'd recommend checking the description for the link to that episode. But as a quick recap, I liken soil to the factory or canvas for life. Entire ecosystems of creation are connected together by the functioning of this interface. And if we neglect the importance of the soil's structure, then everything in the system will suffer. We heard from Tony Ronaldo in that episode, offering us insights into how quickly soil structure can be lost in brittle, dry environments. But it's also just as important a consideration in wetter locations, such as the UK. Like clay being moulded into shape, wet soil can readily become squelchy, manipulated and imprinted with the deep ridges of our welly boots as we trample over it. Heavy footfall or traffic can easily damage the structure of soil. So regardless of what type of climate we farm in, this is always important. The impact on soil structure is the first focus I'd like you to keep in mind. For the second, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you become accustomed to the idea that the very existence of humans is detrimental to the planet? It's not uncommon to feel that the best thing we can hope to achieve is to minimize our impact. But what if we consider ourselves as being of benefit to nature? How about when we breathe, exhaling carbon dioxide? We've just produced plant food. And that's not such a hard job, is it? And how about when food goes through our digestive system? Well, when it comes out the other end, it's the same thing. Plant food. Benefiting nature is really, really effortless. Because we're part of nature. The abundance and continued production of nature exists because there's all different players acting together. Animals, plants, insects, microbes. Humans are only different because we think so much. In nature, nothing is being a benefit to the system in order to seek favour. None of the actions are a result of manipulation, expectation or the promise of reward. In nature, everything is just being. And the system finds its balance through connections that are unapologetically opportunistic in fulfilling needs. Trees exhaling oxygen, animals breathing it in. Simply better together. What makes humans destructive is not our existence, but our insistence on disconnecting the system. We like to create order with our minds. So we have rights and wrongs and numbers that we can measure. We're never looking for the connections. We're looking for the things. Our second focus in this episode is building connections. To have multiple players working together. Diversity and integration are both a part of this. Now for the most part, being human, accustomed to modern society, well, we have a pretty bad relationship with death and decay. But life can't exist without it. 
abundance depends upon all the icky decomposition and creepy crawlies. And it's a phase of the cycle that happens at all scales. From the microbes in a pile of poop, to the majestic herd stomping down old growth underfoot or snapping weak trees as they relieve an itch on their journey through the forest. Even the fire that blazes unexpectedly can be part of this. And whilst, as humans, we have a history of being very destructive, we're certainly not keen on the idea of it being out of our control. It's completely understandable to want to preserve safety and predictability for ourselves. But this impulse to control has not only seen us disconnect the system, but it's created an element of stagnation. Abundance in nature is always a result of cycling, movement, flow. Our third and final focus for this episode then, are we supporting cycling so that decay can feed growth? So, can farming actually help soil structure, build connections, and support cycling within the system? We could dive into regenerative farming in so many different ways, but there's a whole world of info out there. And the purpose of these focuses is to simply inspire you and prepare you to go and take a deeper look. When we look around and consider how it's become normal for us to farm, we can quickly spot issues. For much of our crop production, we farm in monocultures. That means one single variety of plant across many, many acres, allowing a simplicity in the management and harvesting, especially so we can farm it at scale with big machines. Amongst the many issues, it creates a start-stop cycle that leaves bare soil for long durations. In terms of soil and ecosystem structure, it's akin to laying out your foundations, constructing your building's walls and then coming back in with a bulldozer so you can start again from scratch. The structure never reaches a place of function. Amongst the many approaches that can be far more beneficial on the soil structure is to incorporate perennial plants into the plan. Plants that will stay and establish year after year to develop a more permanent structure above and below the ground. These could be grasses, grains, herbs, fruit canes or productive trees. The list is extensive and so are the ways that they can be incorporated. As a fantastic example of farming that works with perennials and to demonstrate that this is possible even in very difficult conditions, I'm going to bring in Bernadette Millard to share on the creation of her abundant farm within the desert borderlands of Oman. Really one of the, the most important things we wanted to demonstrate is the necessity to move to a perennial food system. The annual cycle of plowing, fertilizing, planting annual vegetables in monocrops, which then have to be sprayed with pesticides, etc., is so detrimental in every way. Whereas we have the opportunity to look around the world and see there's such a richness and diversity of perennial foods. In today's terminology, you might describe 
our farm as a regenerative agroforestry model. In fact, what it mimics very beautifully is the traditional oasis agriculture in, that has been a feature of Oman for the last 5,000 years or more, where you're planting trees is under the, the iconic date palm is the hero tree. But underneath that, you then plant a mango, a lime, pomegranates. Uh, you come down then to mulberries and other berries. Then you've got your grasses, your forage plants, annual vegetables, and finally um, herbs. And that's in a vertical kind of story system. We haven't done anything quite as in intensive as that because our land is too big for that. But it's a similar, similar principle. And traditional Omani uh, agriculture is, in fact, you know, a perfect example of you know, what you may call today regenerative agroforestry. It's supremely adapted to the climate, the climate and all of the other constraints we're working with. This is very near the southeastern tip of Arabia. It's a 15-acre plot on a gravel plain at the foot of Oman's eastern Hajar Mountains. This type of terrain normally is dotted with acacia bushes, um, native shrubs and variety of vegetation. But our particular plot had been completely cleared, which meant it was very much exposed to not just the sun, but also uh, the winds. The temperatures, they can reach typically 47, 48 degrees throughout the summer months. Rainfall uh, is very unpredictable. Officially, it averages uh, about 10 millimetres a year. So it's really negligible. Shaman winds, these are northwesterly winds which sweep down from the desert in the spring and summer and literally can just uh, desiccate trees as they, as they blow through. We soon realised that we had to do something much bigger and more fundamental to create a living habitat and very quickly came to the conclusion that trees and using trees as uh, not just for production but as basic infrastructure the farm was by far and away the the best option once the tree starts to develop any sort of canopy very quickly you notice um, the microclimate the extent it's, it's shading it's retaining more water in the soil it allows things to grow underneath it but also cooling by transpiration the tree itself is releasing water and um, that also has a, a cumulative effect. In our environment as well, you've got very big differential between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures, so we get a lot of dew. And in the morning, you can see that the ground underneath the canopy, or even beyond it, is, is saturated. In the beginning, we didn't realise even what that was. We thought maybe the drip was leaking or something. <laughs> um, but uh, it's amazing that you can walk along a line of trees in the morning and bury your hand almost to the wrist. And yet if you stretch your hand half a metre out into the sun, beyond the canopy, it's, it's like concrete. You would need a pickaxe to break the soil. And that's something that the tree has done on its own.
we always had that concern that the bigger a tree grows, the more water it's going to require. We'll be extracting more from the aquifer. I would say that it's not the case. We're not using any more water for quite mature trees, um, you know, two, five, six, seven meter trees, because they have created their own like little ecological system, I guess you'd call it. In terms of food production, we were very interested to see how much food we could produce, uh, whether as a perennial crop, a tree crop, or annual vegetables. We have about 1,500 trees, which includes um, about 300 date palms. Then we have fruit trees, which range from figs, papaya, mango, custard apple, mulberry. What we do have are very opportunistic plantings where the seeds have blown some distance. So we have frankincense trees, which are growing underneath frangipani. We have a frangipani growing in, in the shade of a neem. We have papayas growing under coconuts. Um, but it all goes back to the general principle that we've created the microclimate and this um, very hospitable habitat for seeds to, to take root. There are many flowering shrubs which play a very useful role to encourage pollinators, but they also produce so much biomass. We can use that in our compost as a mulch for green manures. Surprisingly, the denser you plant, the better the trees are doing. Also, uh, the denser you plant, the more uh, water retention you have in the soil underneath where things like lemongrass or aloe vera, forage grasses um, and the annual vegetables can thrive. Over time, we have had probably less pests. And I think this comes down to the fact we are using so much uh, rich and producing so much rich organic matter in the soil through composting, mulching, we leave the crop residues in the ground um, because the roots keep the soil friable and moist, and then they break down and fertilize kind of organically, naturally. We do share our produce with the bugs that are, and beetles that are beavering around on the soil because they're also performing you know, an important function. Productivity and resilience build year on year. And that's something that we can see very clearly. If you look at what we've accomplished with no background knowledge in farming, limited resources, short space of time, what is designated as marginal land, desert borderlands essentially, which I think account for something like 21% of the available global land mass today, the potential for producing food um, is, is phenomenal and I think a cause for great optimism. And I look forward to um, people taking, taking up the gauntlet and, and moving forward with uh, some of these ideas. I find it so inspiring to learn from projects such as Bernadette that demonstrate to us so clearly 
that we can re-establish ecosystems and benefit the soil structure, all whilst farming for our own needs. Even in locations that have become very depleted and desertified. But the human impact upon the planet really has become immeasurable through how much we've separated the system. I think perhaps the idea of nature's ever-increasing complexity and continued abundance can be a challenge to grasp for modern ears. With such large human populations, the interconnectedness of the whole system of life across the globe has been segmented. The sheer scale that we've cleared and divided up land has taken vast areas of long-established co-creation and chopped them up with restrictive boundaries. The extent of extinction that we have caused to plants, animals and all families of life is a tragedy. And what is much less easy to spot and measure is the loss of connections and the impact that this has on the system as a whole. Vast herds of herbivores wiped out. Species of predators extinct. As elements of the ecosystem get removed too quickly, it switches from a system of abundance to a teeter-totter of attempts to rebalance. Where the climate is brittle, perhaps the decline to desertification becomes rapid. In temperate locations, we might see a boom of one species, causing further detriment to others. A whole system's lens can help us to take fresh eyes to our system of farming. A stark realisation of not only how bizarre it is, but of the potential we have as humans to step in, to turn the tide and become a beneficial element from this place forward. Supporting the systems that have so much ability to support us in return. One of the biggest detriments of our farming system is the separation of livestock from land. We keep huge numbers of a single species of animal in feedlots. Cows on concrete, not soil. And we have their food delivered to them after it's been grown in its isolated monocultures. Cows fed on an unnatural, undiverse diet, dumping their waste separate from any ecosystem at all. The way we farm livestock in isolation from nature has led to these animals being added to the list alongside ourselves as species that are detrimental to our planet. But it seems unlikely that this is the full story. To highlight some of the ways that our farming system can actually build connections that are beneficial to nature, we can take a look at approaches that return the livestock to the land. For this, I'd like to bring in Hannah Thorogood, so we can learn of the wonderful ecosystem benefits that come from the integrated approach to farming that she takes at the Inkpot here in the UK. Here at the Inkpot, we have 130 acres that we farm and we don't have a tractor. Um, we don't have a lawnmower, you know, we're proper Luddites and everything is done by the animals. <laughs> the grazing is all done by the animals, the hedge management's done by the animals. We don't need to plough. It's the way we've always farmed. And it's just this strange little blip over the last few decades 
that we've got to this point where we think it's completely normal to have one person in one tractor farming thousands of acres. And that's possible at the moment, but it won't be forever in a resilient system. The way that we farm and the way that any farmer farms is actually much more important about how the impact on the environment. Cows are a natural organism. You know, they're they're part of nature. They're part of this planet. Yes, if we're farming in kind of industrial levels and we've got a a cow being kept inside or in a kind of a, a beef lot kind of system where they're having a very high input system, lots of grain coming in, lots of tap water coming in. Normally that because the animal is being kept in such an artificial way, they can develop health issues and be um, dependent on lots of chemical input as well. Now, what we try to do with regenerative farming, with permaculture and here at the ink pot is we try to replicate the the animal's natural habitat and natural life as close as possible. And um, the funny thing is, is when you have an animal, like it's the same for us humans, if we're if we keep our life as close to um, how we evolved to live, we are happier and healthier for it. Their footprint is just what's on the farm itself. So they'll graze one day and then we'll move them onto a new area the next day. And the area that they've left behind gets three months rest. And that allows the grass to really, really grow and to do what it does best is to photosynthesize. Think about, and you have a lawnmower, think how many weeks of the year, you know, how long the growing season is through the year of of grass growing, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Well, the grass is growing because it's photosynthesizing and so it's actively sequestering carbon. And when we allow grass to really, really grow and really get really nice and long with that three month rest, each of those blades of grass is like a solar panel, you know, that's absorbing all that sunlight's energy, but also absorbing all that carbon dioxide and pulling it down into the roots. And when grass gets a chance to establish really well above, it gets a really complex root system below and it sequesters a huge amount of carbon and drops it into the soil. So what we're doing is actually kind of pumping carbon from the atmosphere and into the soil by this grazing system. What happens is when we're creating this really healthy soil from this grass that's having three months rest and the soil having a chance to really rest and recover and not be pumped full of chemicals because it just doesn't need it when you're farming like this, you're creating very, very healthy soil. And in that very healthy soil, you create the perfect habitat for a family of bacteria called methanotropes. And those methanotropes eat methane. So they they breathe in methane and they poo it into the soil as carbon. And so when cows and sheep are grazing, they their mouth is down on the ground and they are occasionally burping as they're grazing. <laughs> and and that that methane goes straight into the faces of those little methanotropes who actually go, oh, thanks very much. That's what they wanted. So it's a really important thing for people to understand a bit of the geekiness of the carbon cycle to understand that actually cows really aren't the problem in terms of um, climate change. It's really, really about how we how we farm and how we understand the soil. I've always been a bit of a rare breed girl and a native breed girl. When you're farming and keeping those animals more naturally, they don't get any supplementation. But we're also looking for an animal that is going to be hardy, um, hardy enough to live outside all year round, but also hardy enough to be able to deal with the kind of, you know, the trials and tribulations of life and not get unwell. With our sheep, we've not had a medically lame sheep for six years. We've not had to use antibiotics for six years. And um, these are pretty powerful things. 13 years ago, we came to a very depleted, um, compacted, 
um, pretty knackered arable, um, conventionally managed arable field. And um, through using permaculture and regenerative agriculture techniques, it's now a really thriving, abundant ecosystem. So many farms have been pushed down the line of a monoculture and they often get really bad press for it. And it's often not their fault. It's just something that they've been pushed down because of the demands of the supermarket, which can be they can be really, really tricky to be working with. It often pushes them into only creating one product. What we're working towards is being able to be an incubator system for other new entrants to farming to be able to come in. There's nothing to stop someone running a veg box scheme here or growing medicinal herbs or setting up a micro dairy. All of these things can work in the many layers of the farm and create a true farm ecosystem in terms of not just the biodiversity, but the the opportunities for people to get involved. So can farming be good for soil structure? Yes. And can we move in the direction that builds connections within ecosystems and still get the outputs that we desire from our farms? Absolutely. And since we're asking this at a time when the world's soils and ecosystems have become so degraded, we don't need to seek perfection to see improvements. Moving from where we are now, with an eye and a mind to allow nature to guide us one step at a time, to something better. We could support significant healing and build beautiful systems that never stop surprising us. I hope you've noticed how our three focuses are difficult to discuss in isolation. Before even turning our attention to supporting cycling, well Bernadette has already highlighted the significance of leaving the crop residues and valuing plant biomass for feeding the soil. And now that it's time to focus specifically on the aspect of encouraging decay so that it can feed more growth. Of course, for that to happen, it brings us back to the requirement to support beneficial connections. To really appreciate the need for all of these focuses to be integrated together, you're going to hear from Peter Bick. Peter is a filmmaker who, for the past 10 years, has been working with a wide range of scientists on probably the most in-depth research project into regenerative grazing that I've come across. They're putting together the data that goes behind the experiences of producers like Hannah. Science that gives legs to the notion that working with nature on our farms can be a path to both abundance and healing. This is exciting stuff. Reconnecting livestock with the land has clear benefits for the cycling of nutrients, and we can keep on taking even bigger leaps forward the more that we lean into our understanding of whole ecosystem functioning. The closer we imitate nature, the more we allow it to return to its own inherent abilities of abundant creation. If you have a cow pat, dung, that doesn't disintegrate because there's not the microbial life to dig into it, and there's not the insect life to dig into it. It stays on the field and turns white, and you could throw it like a Frisbee. And, and what happens is then that part of your pasture becomes unusable because you're not growing anything out of that dung that the animal wants to eat. The animal doesn't want to be near their dung. They want to be near forage. 
And so if you have these cow pats all around your pasture, you get these sort of unwanted plants growing right around it. And you literally shrink the size of your farm. Like it's less area to graze. You're shrinking your value. And when the farmers on the other side of that are grazing in a manner that has a lot of rest period with a heavy hit, but a lot of rest, they're actually able to double the amount of forage they're producing, which means they can double the amount of animals they can graze. And sometimes it's triple or quadruple. It, it is quite a significant leap over the years, and it's not a whole long time either. And so when one farmer told me in one of our short films that he doubled his, his herd, he said, I just got a free farm the same size as my farm. Right? And, and that, that's a short film called I Sell Water and Sunshine. I just love that phrase. I found out that there was a way of grazing that emulated the way bison moved across the Great Plains here in the U.S., and it was changing farms quickly and beautifully and getting farmers out of debt and changing the water cycling on their farms. Personally, in 2012 and 2013, I met a bunch of scientists who were very excited by this type of grazing, but there was just virtually no science about it except for a paper from Richard Teague out of Texas A&M. There was nothing else. No one was studying regenerative grazing. No one was even studying regenerative agriculture that much. And it was surprising to me. And it was described to me by the Secretary of Agriculture of the US, <laughs> of the US government, federal government, that of course no one's studying it because there's not a lot of money to be made when you use nature to grow your food as opposed to fight nature. Fighting nature, there's big, big, big dollars in fighting nature. Um, unfortunately, the farmers are the ones who bear the brunt of that ec economic system. So f many farmers are in debt as a result of it. Uh, I'm now on the road promoting our latest series, our latest film, which is a series called Roots So Deep. You can see the devil down there. And that includes and is part of a very large research project to, to study adaptive multi-paddock grazing on one side of the fence and conventional grazing on the other side of the fence. The science team came together quite naturally in 2013 where we had grazing specialists, bug specialists, microbial specialists, soil microbes, bird specialists, ecologists, um, greenhouse gas specialists, and animal welfare people, farmer welfare, you know, farm, so, social so, uh, sociologists, um, water, and we spent 2014 to 2018 designing and fundraising for this project uh, with, you know, seven universities and three independent research groups and the USDA. So we measured soil carbon and nitrogen, water infiltration, uh, microbial life, bugs above and below ground, birds as an indicator for wildlife health. We measured greenhouse gas cycling the CO2, the methane, and the nitrous oxide. We measured the farmer well-being, the animal well-being, and the plant communities. And, and how diverse were they? And were they, did they have good nutrient density? And were they covering the soil? Our work was that we wanted to do a system. We wanted to show how all those things 
work together or, or do they work together? You know, we were just trying to figure that out. Our expectations were certainly our observations to even think about doing the science was that it seemed like the regenerative grazing, the amp grazing, we thought it would be better, maybe on some of the metrics. We didn't know if it would be better on all the metrics we studied. And our data to date is, it's astoundingly better. What I've understood from all the farmers who are doing it, it's easier, it's less time, or it's the same amount of time, but time better spent. So in a conventional way, you're going to spend a lot of time, most likely growing a lot of hay, which means fertilizing and hoping it rains a couple days after you fertilized uh, or before that planting seed, uh, possibly plowing up your field every time you plant seed or disking your field at least with a cut, um, hoping the fertilizer works, spending an enormous amount of your income on that fertilizer. Then you have to cut it and bale it and then drag it out and feed your animals. And so a big part of their journey is hay. And then you've got the regenerative folks who don't grow hay, don't spend money on fertilizer, use their animals as the tool to make sure that their land is producing a lot more forage, a lot more grasses and whatever else they've either planted or what's naturally there. You're spending a lot less money. You're working with nature, which is basically using you know, upwards of 3.2 billion years of R&D, right? As opposed to the last 150 years, 200 years where we're fighting nature. The farmers tell me they get to see a lot more nature, like they're seeing a lot more nature, like spiders in the morning, that bit in episode one, right when we meet Cooper and Katie. And they're like, did we not notice the spiders before? Or there are a lot more spiders, right? And 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 then you find out there's a lot more dragonflies. What, what do those dragonflies eat? They eat mosquitoes. And so all of a sudden, you know, these these bugs that were problems before because they only had one type of thing growing and that bug thrived on that one type of thing. When you have a lot of things growing, a great diversity of, of forage, you draw in a lot of bugs so that when one bug shows up that is a true pest, there's a lot of people that will say, thank you, you're very tasty. And, and it's checked. And, and so therefore you don't have to spray pesticides and insecticides. And it just keeps going that way. So you can sort of spiral in the right direction or spiral in a much more unproductive direction where you need all those inputs. You need fertilizer because nothing else is providing it. You need insecticide because you've only got one kind of plant growing and you've got bugs that are out of whack. It's interesting how cattle are, are like the only side of the coin that's getting really put up there as a problem, the industrial agricultural model across the board, livestock, row crop production, it's pretty damaging. I think the, I think the, I think, I think we can prove that quite clearly, but man, regenerative agriculture is so powerful. And so it's kind of old because it's the way things used to be done, but because we've gotten so big in scale of food production, that it's kind of got to be retold again and retooled for scale. And um, you see it every day. It's absolutely doable. Like it's being done. People are growing large amounts of food where the soil's in better shape after they harvested their food than it was before they planted. That's doable at scale. If we can inspire change 
and 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 I think farmers hold one of the biggest levers. They have so much land. They 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 own and work so much land, and land is such a great greenhouse gas cycling tool, water cycling tool, wildlife like land, right? And so um, we need farmers, big time. No doubt the data and incredible film series that Peter has produced will become a wonderful engagement for ever more people to take a deeper look into the extraordinary potential of regenerative farming. The combination of science with beautiful stories of abundance from farmers is a pretty powerful blend. Peter's full interview for We Are Carbon will be published in early summer, alongside the UK launch of his film Roots So Deep. You can see the devil down there. Don't forget to subscribe so that you'll be notified. And in the meantime, you can follow what he's up to alongside learning more from Bernadette and Hannah by looking at the links in the description. And let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>